Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Yeah, my life is pretty much one series of awkward hug moments after the other. I'm quite a huggy person, and I'm never sure quite how you... Some people, you know, yeah, I love it. Some people are very awkward when it comes to hugging. I had a friend who uh, started a Facebook group that was entitled, If You Hug Me, I Will Punch You In The Neck. Um, I particularly love hugging that guy. Good. Um, my name's Andy, and I'm, uh, I have the privilege of being on staff team here. I'm, I get to help out with anything to do with worship, anything to do with uh, creative design, and anything to do with tech, uh, which is hugely enjoyable. Uh, so I'm uh, yeah, really, really chuffed to be able to uh, come and uh, do the number three week, number four week. Well, we had an introduction, so it's the third letter, third letter, um, to Pergamum. Um, I've had a... I've had an interesting week this week. I've had a few different uh, messages that have been some have been good, some have been sad. Um, and uh, one, one, of the, one of the messages we had through from a friend in Harper Hay. We did Eden in Harper Hay uh, for about nine or ten years. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely incredible. Most incredible, beautiful people there. And um, there was a little old lady called Margaret. We called her Little Margaret because she literally was like this big. She's tiny, tiny, tiny. And uh, unfortunately, she died last week. And um, yeah, it was. I was just kind of. I guess when you hear stuff like that, it just kind of you, your mind goes back and you, you just try and remember that person and honour that person. I was just taken aback by remembering her, remembering how she was, remember who she was, and how she was just always, always after Jesus. There was a little twinkle in her eye the whole time, and she was always pursuing that uh, intimacy and closeness. And uh, I loved as well that she was this tiny little, like she looked crazy, like if you touched her she'd break kind of thing. But she was so warm and ready to engage with all the young people who were nut jobs. She was one of the women who got shot in the bum with a BB gun when the lads put balaclavas on and ran it, effing and jeffing in the church and shooting their gun off. And she got shot in the bum while she was taking communion. And yet she had this kind of, I know, it's awkward. Um, And yet she had this love for these young people, and it was that heart of Jesus, and I was like, wow, little Margaret, she finished well, she finished well, she finished in love with Jesus, passionate for him. I also had um, an invitation to a Facebook group uh, for one of my teachers at school that had retired, and part of the post, when I went and flicked through, was this little photograph of some of the teachers that taught me when, uh, when I was uh, in that, do my GCSE, so it was like, I think it was like, um, year, year 10? I can't remember. I don't know what, how it works out. But, um, and, um, and I just saw some of, the, some of the people on there. One of the, one of the guys was a guy called Paul Wilcox, who he left when I was finishing my GCSEs, went to work for Script Union and then for um, Covenanters and for Youth of Christ. And now he's um, raised money to buy a, a space, to buy a building where uh, people can come and be mentored and people can come and, and have that place of accountability with one another. Teams can come. But he basically lives his life encouraging others and inspiring others uh, to, to, to love God and to do good things. 
I'm like, that's amazing. And he's not finished yet, but that's, he's doing well, you know? And then also in the photograph was this guy called Godfrey Higgins, who um, he, he's, he's dead now, and he was, my, he was my, le- my politics lecturer. And he was brilliant. He was very, like, jowly, kind of Winston Churchill kind of guy. Kind of, yes, I'm going to talk about politics, you know? And he kind of he'd walk around, and he'd always tuck his, manage to tuck his shirt into the back of his belt rather than his trousers. So he'd kind of go around the classroom looking a bit like a duck, um, which I found hilarious because I was slightly cheeky, but um, he was a beautiful man who was, in his spare time, was a Methodist lay preacher. And whenever he saw me in the corridor, he'd come up to me and be like, Miss Smith, keep the faith, keep the faith, like that. And he'd just grab me and shake me, like every time he saw me in the corridor, keep the faith. I was like, what? This guy was amazing. And he just loved his students, and he, and he poured himself out into helping us learn and to be better people. But he was a man after God's heart. And he finished well. I love that we're going. I love the book of Revelation, and um, it, without wanting to steal anyone's thunder, it's it's a book that gives us a sneak peek at the end, in some ways. It gives us an idea of where God's taken all of this stuff. Um, but the reality is, as well, it's a letter that's written to a church in the middle of their story, not at the beginning, equally not at the end either. It was in the middle of all the complexity and mess and conflict and all the different things that were going on. And it was the word of God to the church in that time. It was real. It's historical. It's not just a kind of a a random poem written by a a lonely guy on an island. It's something that was a love letter to the church to spur them on to finish well. Don't we want that? Um... We're going to draw a little timeline, if that's okay. Uh, we're going to look at um, four periods of history in the church that lead us up to Revelation uh, to help us get some of the context of why these words are important, what they're about. Um, so the first thing I want us to look at uh, is Pentecost. So Pentecost was around 30 AD, and um, it was the moment where in, in some ways, the, the church was born. The Spirit of God came and he filled the disciples. They went out into the streets and preached, and 3,000 people got saved. And it's, I can't quite express how nuts this is, because up until that point, you've essentially got one nation and one temple, one line of priests, that, and, and that's how you knew that you were God's people. That's how you connected with God. At Pentecost, it suddenly became many nations. In fact, all nations. It became a temple of living stones and nations of priests. And God's endorsement wasn't a single pillar of fire that they followed through the desert. It was tongues of fire that appeared over the heads of the individuals that were uh, part of part of the, the church at that time. And um, I love that... Uh, there was this totally messy breakout moment um, that threw the church into this kind of crazy adventure of, of like treachery and um, passion and um, living with one another, sharing everything. We have this kind of we have a little bit of a kind of romantic 
as we kind of push into Acts chapter 2, we have a bit of a romanticized picture of the church. It's like, wow, they all just kind of hung out together and they all just like ate food together and they all just kind of like did stuff together. And that was so cool. And don't we want to be like the church of Acts chapter 2? And in many ways we do. But I think also there's a richness in understanding where the church progressed from that point. And often we can uh, get a bit disillusioned when we try to simply work out the app, their application of church in our context. It kind of, how does that work? Because now we have like banks and mortgages and all kinds of stuff that makes it really messy to just to have a common pot. Could you imagine what the meeting would look like for us to try and work out how do we get a common pot? How do we make like one thing? How do we bring all of our money, put it into one thing, yeah, and then work out what everyone needs? Could you imagine trying to logistically do that today in this room? It'd be nuts. And so we, we sometimes go, ooh, I'm not sure how that works. And so we kind of, we essentially throw the cultural baby out with the, I guess, the applicational bathwater of the early church. And, and what I love is that there is, there is a culture, there is a heartbeat that actually we can engage with the early church, um, even though in some ways it is going to have to look different because we are a different culture of people. Um, and that's where it began. Fast forward 20 years, and now we've got the Council of Jerusalem. So that idea that it's not just about being a Jew and being circumcised, but actually it's all nations that have the opportunity to be God's people. And in the Council of Jerusalem, they were basically asking the question, how do we hang out together? How do we do that and do that well? Because for a Gentile to eat food was kind of, there were no restrictions really, where for a Jew there were a lot of restrictions. You know, they didn't eat food sacrificed to idols because it was kind of like a secondary idolatry. Whereas for Gentiles, it was just food. It's like a burger. Boom. You know, meat. What's not to love, you know? And um, uh, the Council of Jerusalem is very much about trying to say, how do we get on? How do we connect? How do we live together without causing offense, but in a way that means that we can move forward into the purposes of God? And so the Council of Jerusalem... It was a really important moment. It's, it shows you how quickly the church went from being this kind of um, very fluid and um, nomadic kind of thing to something that had a bit of organization. You know, to have a council, you have to be relatively organized. And um, they, uh, they got together and they decided two things. That basically, if, even though there might, there's an argument to say there might not be anything wrong with it, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. That means that you know that confidently you can have... You can share food with one another. You can share life with one another and not cause offense and be one and be connected. Uh, and don't do anything silly sexually either and because that just kind of messes up relationships, doesn't it? And it's all about how do we get on. So those were the two things that the Council of Jerusalem kind of put in place. And that's really important for us as we look at Pergamum in a minute. Um, fast forward another 20 years and you have the destruction of the temple. And you say, well, why, why would the destruction of a Jewish temple affect the Christian church? Um, it was a big deal. You can imagine Roman occupation, uh, and you have this kind of tension of everybody trying to work out where they sit in that, and the, the way the Pharisees engaged with that, the way the, the, um, the Sadducees and the Essenes engaged with that, were all slightly different. And, but it basically kicked off, and there was this kind of first Jewish revolt that occurred uh, when Gessius Florus... <laughs> Um, see, uh, he started basically seizing the temple silver because he wasn't getting. He didn't feel like he was getting enough taxes from the Jews. So he was like, "I oh, know, I'll go into the temple and I'll seize all their silver." So they just kicked off and, and started um, revolting against the, the establishment. 
And in AD 66, 3,600 Jews were killed. And it just began this um, series of, of battles and really bloody conflicts that ended up in uh, Rome, uh, at, the po- at that point led by Titus, burning down the temple. And the reason why this is important is that the, what was at that point, uh, the Jewish Christians, um, they didn't engage in the revolt at all. And so the Jews saw that as, we, we, we wash our hands, we want nothing to do with you, you are, not, you are nothing. You know, even though there was obviously, you know, in many ways Christianity is a, a, a continuation of Judaism. Um, but there was this kind of point where the animosity and the, this kind of wedge was driven between them. And so not only then have you got the, the kind of foreboding presence of the Roman Empire, you've also then got this very clear division uh, between the Jews and the Christians. Uh, and, and so that, that conflict um, really uh, shaped the way the church grew, shaped w- the way the church spread, because uh, it was conflict that always spread the church, whether it was um, Stephen getting martyred right at the beginning um, by being belligerent uh, in the temple, or whether it was um, you know, the sacking of the temple in, in AD 70. Um, it's all what caused the movement of the church to be spread out and to, and to go further. And so then we fast forward another 20 years and we get to a place of uh, the letter of Revelation being written. So this is a real letter written by a real guy to real people in a real situation. Uh, as I said, it's not like an irrelevant poem about the eschaton, you know, the Armageddon, the end times. You know. It's not just that. It is actually something incredibly powerful that was written to the church at the time. And so that's our timeline. That's, our, um, that's where we're up to in terms of being able to see a snapshot of a church in the middle. A church working it out. A church just trying to get on with being church and do life and to follow Jesus and not getting it right. Um, we've seen uh, already uh, the letter to Ephesus. Um, don't forget your first love. We've seen the letter to Smyrna uh, about finding hope in suffering. And now we're in Pergamon. And Pergamon, really, their whole deal, their whole thing uh, that, that is being uh, highlighted to them is the idea of compromise, which we'll look about in a minute. But let's, let's go into the scripture and have a little look at what we're, we're talking about. So Revelation 12 so Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17, it says this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamon. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. So Pergamon literally means married. That's what it means. It means married. And Pergamon was a place that was very affluent. It was high up, so it was mil- militarily it was quite strategic. Um, it was dubbed as the greatest city of Asia Minor. And so this is, the, this is the place where the church is, 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 is existing. And the letter, it says, is from the one 
with the two-edged sword. Jump forward a chapter and you see that he's talking about Jesus. Jesus, the one with eyes of fire, walking among the lampstands. There's this light in the dark place and he stands there with a two-edged sword coming from his mouth. This, this, is, this isn't the snuggle-bum Jesus. This isn't the, I'm going to put my head, you know, John putting his head on the chest of Jesus and having a little nuzzle and having a little chat about the day. And wasn't it a great catch of fish that we had today? Isn't that lovely? This is the Jesus that stands there with eyes of fire, with hair as white as snow, with feet like bronze and a two-edged sword that protrudes from his mouth that is the word of God. He is like, wow, that's who's writing this letter to you. So take notice. Take notice. He says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny even to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. So this city, Pergamum, was the first place that was dedicated to Caesar. It had more than 50 gods that were worshipped, and Caesar himself was claiming to be God. So this was the prevailing worldview of that city. You can imagine being a Christian in that setting. You can imagine the kind of conflict that would, would come about if you were saying, no, 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 there is one God, and his name is Jesus. This was the environment in which they lived. And so it meant that... that they were living in a place where they were the cognitive minority. Their worldview was the smallest view. And there's something interesting that happens uh, when you're a cognitive minority. There's a book by a guy called Peter L. Berger uh, called The Rumors of Angels. He's like a sociologist, anthropologist, flingy flangiologist. That last one's not a real thing. But they, um, he... Uh, talks about how when, when you're, when, particularly when you're in a conflict situation, if you're the cognitive minority, if you have the worldview that is the smallest worldview, if you're the, if you're the minority, if you're the small group of people, what happens is, uh, can happen in a negative way is one of three things. Either you give up, so sack it, I'm just going to you know, put on my toga and go off and be like a Roman, or you um, kind of syncretize, you, you, you try and do both at the same time, you try and mix it together a little bit, try and have one foot in each camp. Or you become really militant and you fight and you become belligerent about your cause. And it's in that, those are kind of the three responses. And you can see actually with the, um, when, when um, Gessius Florus took the silver from the temple, the, 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 uh, the Jews there, they kind of rose up in this place of militancy and caused these years and years and years of conflict and battle and death and blood. And what we see in the church, interestingly, is this actually this syncretism, this compromise, this, can we have one foot in one place and one foot in the other? And, and the conflict, in a sense, squeezed out this, uh, this compromise. Um, and that's what uh, John goes on to talk about. He says, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel and taught them uh, to sin by eating food to idols and committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Reminding him again of what this Jesus that's speaking. Anyone in the grow group? Yeah, lots of people. Grow groups are great, aren't they? We love our grow group. I've found in the time that we've been, we had a grow group, is that there are two types of people who are in a grow group. You have the people who like cake, and they bring cake and lots of it, and they eat cake and lots of it. And then you have the people who are 
come on a paleo diet. <laughs> Do you know those people? And I don't want to offend anyone. I don't, but what the heck? I, it's, it's so awkward, isn't it, when you just, you've literally got this kind of spread of glory, and then someone's like, oh, I'm on a paleo diet. I can't eat sugar. And I, you kind of, you, you want to be like, oh, that's great, well done for being disciplined, and I would love to kick you in the neck, but I can't. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm always, I'm always, I always find it a bit awkward, I'll be honest with you, I always find it awkward. And the reason that I find it awkward is this, is that because then you have that person who's on the paleo diet, they come and they bring a paleo cake, or a paleo cookie, something that doesn't have sugar in it. I'm like, why? <laughs> why? And you're there like, thanks, oh yeah, that's really nice. And all the moisture like, sucks from your mouth, like, what is nice about this? It's so frustrating because you then feel obliged to eat this thing that is akin to cardboard and has equal flavor and texture. And you, you, you're there eating it and thinking, there's a huge cake over there, but I feel obliged to be polite to the person on a paleo diet and have that thing there. And that is, for me, the perfect picture of compromise. Why? Why? Why would you not have sugar in cake? It's cake, and it's, it's nice, and it's, it tastes great, and it's probably not good for you, but hey, we're going to get new bodies one day anyway, and um, no, that's not good teaching. Um, yeah, yeah, amen. Can I get a witness? Probably. Um, but what I want to say is that compromise, we can say, oh, you've compromised. And you're like, oh, no, I'm such a bad person. But actually, what it is, is that you've missed out on what is best. You've missed out on what is the most tasty um, way of living. And we don't want to have a life that is like, dry, tasteless, fluff. You know, we want a life that is full, rich colorful, you know, that we have life, a life that is to the full. We don't want to miss out on what God has for us. So don't be on a paleo diet. <laughs> have oils for it in Tesco. No, do. I'm joking. I'm, don't be offended. I'll probably, yeah, if you've got any, if you're offended by that, just talk to Catherine <laughs> afterwards. Um, but I think it's important. I think it's important that we understand that what is happening here, the dynamic that's happening here in terms of compromise, is that they're missing out on what God's got for them. Um, I think that sometimes we can, when, we, when we try and think about what it means to be a church that is uncompromising, it leans us sometimes into a place that justifies bigotry. You know, that if we're uncompromising, it's okay because we can stand against all this stuff. And I found, I don't know about you, and I don't know whether I'll offend anybody in saying this, but I found that in the last few months, it's not the conversations about homosexuality or about monogamy or not, um, or any of that kind of stuff that have caused offense in people. Do you know the conversations that have caused the most offense in people in the last few months in my life? It's the conversations that have talked about a God, a loving Father who is so passionate about us, and his love is, and his grace is so vivid that he would have the capacity even to forgive a terrorist or a bomber and to see them as his children. And it is that view and that uncompromising stance that has caused the most offense in the conversations that I've had with non-Christians in the last few months. 
So let's be that. If I, if I want to be known as being intolerant, I want to be intolerant for being vividly passionate about grace. And that's what this letter is about. And Jesus isn't speaking to this church with his two swords to be saying, you're so rubbish. Look at all this compromise. He's speaking to them saying, look at what you've missed. There's something better for you. There is grace for you. So come and get a hold of it. You know, the, um, the Nicolaitans, you know, their whole deal was eating food that was sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Does it sound familiar? You know, the one thing that we hear about in AD 50 that the church were trying to work out was how do we be one? Don't eat food that's sacrificed to idols. Don't engage in sexual immorality. And so the whole movement of the Nicolaitans within the early church was there to bring division. It wasn't just that that was a bad, you know, eating that food was bad and all that kind of other stuff was bad. It's that it, what it caused was the breakdown of God's heart for the church, which was oneness. And that was what was being broken. That was what was being challenged in this. You know, it's not just, oh, that's a bad thing to do. It's actually undoing the fabric of the church itself. And so this is why Jesus is speaking into it. So what does he say to do? He says, anyone with ears must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Everyone who is victorious, I will give some the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a name, a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Jesus is saying to a compromising church, repent, turn around, adopt a better mindset, choose life. He's saying, look at this, look at what I've given you. He's not saying repentance is, oh no, I need to stop doing that, turn around and then start doing something else. He's saying, no, 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 put that down and turn and see Christ See what he has for you. He's saying, I will give you a white stone, which was something that a judge would give to someone in a courtroom to say that you've been acquitted. You know, it's a mark of forgiveness. It would be something that would symbolize you've been invited to the banquet. You belong here. You are in. You're not outside. Have you noticed that when people... Um, uh, feel like they are a minority and feel threatened that, um, that they become, they, they kind of reach for independence. You know, you see that in marriages all the time. When people, when people uh, feel like there's conflict going on, they step into independence and they step away from connectivity and they step away from intimacy and into a place of, well, I just need to be able to do this on my own. And that's kind of where the church had got to. And he's speaking, saying, no, you are in. You are connected. You are one. To a broken and dispossessed, displaced people who had lost their way, Jesus is reminding them of their heritage. Pergamum means married, as I said. And Jesus is giving these people a new name, a personal name to them. And where have we seen that before? Any ideas? Where have we seen that before? That idea of a new name, that you're married. In Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62, there's an ancient promise. So Jesus here is saying, remember the ancient promise. This is for you. This is what repentance looks like. This is what repentance results in. And so to a broken and idolatrous and compromising people, this is what Jesus says. Let's stand together. We're going to read this 
from Isaiah 62. I've changed the words in blue from Zion and Jerusalem and her and stuff to, to your, because I want us to prophesy this over ourselves today. Is that okay? And we're going to prophesy over one another. We're going to declare this over one another. And you might be standing there thinking, yeah, I am a broken, displaced, um, disobedient, compromising, idolatrous person. Um, great, this is for you. This is God's word to you. And so don't say it half-heartedly. Don't say it like it's not really for me, but maybe I'll just kind of surreptitiously say it for the person next to me. This is for you. This is for your life. So let's say it with, I'm not going to use the mic, I'll say it, but I'm not going to use the mic. Because I want, you to, I want you to hear your own voices together as we declare this in the space. Is that cool? Because I love you, I will not Okay, grab a seat. Do the band want to come up for us? Does anybody need to hear that this morning? Does anybody need to hear that you're forgiven, that you're in, that you're accepted? Anyone need to know that God's not going to leave you where you are? He's not going to stay still. Anybody know that he's calling you to turn around and to see where he's taking you? So where are you on this timeline? Are you at conception? Right at the beginning? Is God placing a seed in your life? Are you getting to know him? Are you asking questions like, God, are you real this morning? Maybe you, you have been away from him and you're like, do you know what? I, I, I need God to reseed something in my life to bring something new again. Maybe you're at that place of collaboration. You know, there's an implication to Jesus welcoming you into the family. How does that work? How do we get on? How do we connect? Maybe you're in that place of conflict where everything just feels like it's against you. And it's making you into a person that you, you didn't want to be. Maybe you're in that place of compromise where it's all just a bit of a mess. And you've lost the kind of the compass. Wherever you are, looking, looking back isn't going to change anything. But God can give you the lightest of hearts for the heaviest of burdens this morning. You know, regardless of the mistakes you've made and the things that you've ended up depending on. You know, constantly acknowledging Christ with our words, but then denying him with our actions. Having a poor understanding of his strength, so when we feel weak, we lean on other stuff. God is giving us the opportunity this morning to finish well. To posture ourselves to finish well. And wherever you are, on this timeline, you have that opportunity today to repent, to turn around, to look at what he has for you. Now, repentance is about 
discovering who he is. Turning to Jesus, hearing what he says, going where he takes you. Look at his heart for you. He loves you. He can't keep still. His heart yearns for you. He will not remain silent. He will hold you in his hand and delight in you and call you his bride. That is John's whole point to this book. Look at Jesus. Look at who he is. And look at what he's come for. He's come for his bride. The bride price has been paid and he has called you to himself. So we're just going to finish now and sing a song of worship. But as we do, we have these boxes of white stones here. And I want you to think about where you are. Maybe you're right at the beginning. Maybe like, Jesus, come into my life. Give me a better purpose. I want to be your bride. I want to be connected to you. I want to know who you are. I know your plans for me. Come and grab a stone and stand here. If you may be in that place of just trying to work stuff out, the implication of Jesus in your life, and you feel like he's messing up a bit, he's messing up your house, but actually he's wanting to give you a, a, a promise and a, and a place of being connected and one with him and with one another. Come and stand here. Maybe you're in that place of conflict, uh, and, and you just need Jesus to come and help you with some of that stuff, um, and you've got some prayers that you want to pray. Uh, come and stand here. And then if you're in that place of compromise and you're like, you know what, I just feel like I've lost my way a bit. And I, wanna, I, wanna, I want Jesus to put that compass back in my hand and I can push forward into the things that he's got for me, then come and stand here. We're going to need to do it quickly, if that's okay, because I've been chat- jibber-jabbering on. Quit your jibber-jabber. Um, but we're going right, to respond with all our heart because I just believe uh, these moments of reconfiguration for our heart are vital because it's what keeps us on the right path. You know, making the right turn at a junction uh, will eventually get you to the right destination. And, and again, he is, he is helping us posture ourselves as individuals and as a church to finish well. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.